Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, media trainer and editor of veganbusinessmedia.com, the multimedia blog providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Liza Broad-Glidden, co-founder and executive vice president of culture and sustainability at Beanfield Snacks in Los Angeles, which produces bean and rice chips. Beanfields is a family-owned business that was founded in 2011 by Reed Glidden, along with Liza, his wife, and Reed's brother, Roy Glidden, with the aim of creating delicious plant-based non-GMO snacks with beans as the primary ingredient. The company's products are sold across the US, Canada, Australia and other countries and in 2013 it became certified as a B Corp, cementing its commitment to business for good. While Reed and Roy Glidden brought more than 20 years' experience in the natural food sector to the table, Liza was new to the business. Although she's a natural entrepreneur with previous experience as part owner of a construction firm, as well as having been active in a number of non-profits, including the Social Venture Network and the American Sustainable Business Association. Liza rolled out the very first batch of bean and rice chips in the family kitchen before putting her background in arts, education and writing to good use in Beanfield's marketing campaigns. In this interview, Liza discusses the benefits of B Corp certification, why the business chose to be a for-profit public benefit corporation, contests as a way to raise your brand profile, how the company got featured on the Today Show, the one thing anyone contemplating leaving a salaried job to start a business should do, the importance of communities to grow your business, and much more. Here's the interview with Liza Broad-Glidden from Beanfield Snacks. Hello, Liza. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Katrina. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. So I'm very excited to, to interview you today. Um, as we were just chatting before, I really love your uh, your products and I'm very glad that they, they're over in my side of the world in Australia as well, which is great. So tell us a little bit, um, I believe the company's been going um, since around 2011. So tell us what are your drivers or the reasons for running the business? What's your why? Well, my husband, Reed Glidden, and I founded Beanfield Snacks with Reed's brother, Roy Glidden, over five years ago. Uh, Reed and I are passionate vegans, and we are all particularly passionate about beans. Beans are one of the most sustainable and nutritious protein sources on earth. Beanfield Snacks are all about beans. We love to grow them. We love to eat them. We love to make them into the most tempting <laughs> snacks possible. Uh, and a lot of our fans say that we our chips are the best tasting chip around, bar none. For sure. So, so oh, that's wonderful. I love your passion. I can, I can hear that in your voice. And um, I believe you're, you're passionate about natural foods in general. And, and uh, so is your why sort of around um, uh, animal, uh, you know, raising issues, animal, aware, uh, animal uh, yeah. welfare, environment? Um, really, all of the 
all of the reasons that people become vegan are very important to us, um, including uh, concern for animals, concern for peace in the world and human consciousness. Uh, I don't see how we can be the conscious people we need to be to wield the kind of power we have um, as technologically uh, empowered beings if we don't if we are still killing animals. It just doesn't make sense. One doesn't go with the other. Respect for life is is primary. And um, you know, we need to teach that to every child. And how oh, are we going to teach it to them through feeding them burgers? That just doesn't make sense. Except we can make really great <laughs> vegan burgers now. I eat them <laughs> all the time. So, you know, no, no um, insult to burgers that are made the right way. Absolutely. I, I love that you've, you've tied that into, because uh, what I always think of is, you know, running an ethical vegan business, you know, running a business on ethical vegan principles, it's very much a form of advocacy or activism even to, uh, you know, to, to make a difference in the world. So why did you choose to run a business? It's kind of curious because there's lots of different ways people can do it. I believe that you, um, you're a bit of an entrepreneur anyway, like before, you know, you guys started Beanfields, you were already really quite entrepreneurial. So that's, tell us a little bit about that. That's correct. I, I was always involved in business, but on a much smaller scale. When I met my husband, he uh, broadened my horizons, <laughs> and uh, we together we we um, began, you know, doing business on a much bigger scale. Um, but I was involved in in other companies uh, that uh, made, you know, that were much more community based. What do you like about being? Oh, okay. What well, do you like about being an entrepreneur? Well, um, it's a really spicy combination of freedom and responsibility. Oh, <laughs> and that's challenge. a really lovely definition. I love that. <laughs> that's a really great soundbite, and I haven't heard that before. It's really cool. <laughs> Thank you, Katrina. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, well, you know, and and I guess I'll say, you know, on a more humble level, what most entrepreneurs say, which is, I'm not really suited to work for somebody else. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't have the temperamental qualities, and and I think I can say that for my husband too. Fine, for sure, for sure. Um, now, yeah, I, uh, just talking about kind of keeping on that theme of business for good or business for activism, you've become um, certified as a B Corp in 2013. For our international right. listeners, can you just explain very briefly what a B Corp is and why did you decide to go down this route? Well, um, B Corps are businesses who gather together to use business as a force for good. I believe at this time there are just under 2,000 B Corps in the world. I haven't looked at the number lately, but they're all over the world. Um, my three favorite examples are Ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, and Etsy. They're all B Corps. Um, our bank is a B Corp. Our accountant is a B Corp. Our lawyer uh, our te team of corporate lawyers are B Corps, and our insurance agents are B Corps. 
So all our whole financial team that supports our company, they're all B Corps, all committed to doing business as a, as a force for good. Um, and that makes a huge difference. You know, we know where our money sleeps at night. Um, but that's just one aspect. Really, being a B Corp, you know, um, if you're a vegan company and you're making claims that your company is a good company doing business in a way that makes the world better, then B Corp gives you a vigorous third-party standard. That means it's not just your opinion anymore. It also means that you're standing with other companies all over the world who want to meet these flexible and meaningful standards for sustainability and social justice. Got it, right. So you have to follow certain or come up to certain requirements in order to get that certification. Well, it's actually a very complex algorithm. It's not like you have to meet one particular standard. You have to come up to a score of 80 or more on a vat, on a on a large and complex array. So some companies are better, for instance, in their community relations. Others are better in their labor relations. Others may be better in their uh, sustainability. So the B Corp um, certification, which you have to renew every two years, uh, we renew it every year because we are also what's called in the U.S. a PBC, a public benefit corporation. That means that our corporate structure legally is actually that we have a social benefit. So every year we need to provide a report on what our social benefit is and how we've done on our social benefit that year. And I think that's a really exciting new category of business, a category of business that's about making a profit, but not only making a profit. So we're definitely not a nonprofit. No way. You know, we're we're in it, we're making money, but that's not all we're doing. We're also a force for good. And that's the point. I love that. That's so cool. Um, and I love that you've done that. And obviously, like you say, as you're renewing every year, so you're putting a lot of work, a lot of effort into this, um, and, yeah. and which is wonderful. So I imagine what kind of challenges does that bring and what, also what benefits does it um, lend to you as an organization? Well, there are always, you know, it's always a leap to go to the next level of the standard. You know, one leap was becoming a public benefit corporation. Another leap was getting all our financial services to be B Corps. And there are many leaps to come. Um, For example, we're a fairly informally organized uh, company at this point, but we need to have more formal procedures and standards for things. and uh, that meet these ethical standards for, um, let me see if I can think of an example. Well, one that I think we've, we've done is uh, we've met a standard for um, maternal and paternal leave for employees. Now, we've never actually had to exercise that. None of our employees have chosen that route so far in our five-year history, but you (laughs) never know. Um, Some, uh, definitely there are ones who could if they, if they chose. So, um, 
So, but that's just an example of the type of thing that the B Corp challenges you to address. It challenges you to think about it ahead of time before the situation uh, comes up. It challenges you to look at, you know, who are your employees? Are you reaching out to new groups of people? Um, are you diverse? Um, you know, how much of your uh, ownership and leadership is women, for example, you know, I'm the, um, you know, I'm the, I'm not the only woman investor in our company, but I'm the only principal who's a woman. And it's important to have that representation of women in uh, every aspect of the company. Got it. Got it. Fantastic. Thank you for explaining that. So, so what kind of benefits does it bring you? Because you're going to a lot of of, of work to, um, you know, a lot of effort to, uh, you know, to get these these standards in place, which is wonderful and very very inspiring. I'm really loving hearing about this. What benefits does it bring you as a company? The difference between, you know, how can I say this? We need to demonstrate on a daily basis that we are a company that cares. We care what we put in our products. We care how we treat our employees. We care about every aspect of our business. We're not perfect. We don't try to be. But as my husband likes to say, we're pretty darn good. So, you know, we're just we're just leaping along trying to do a little bit better every year. For sure. I'm talking about, I guess, from a public perception. So if people see that you're a B Corp, uh, does that mean that they're more likely to be, or certain consumers will more likely be attracted to your company because they know that, you know, you really are going to all this extra trouble. So you're more attractive to buy from? I think that, um, uh, yes. I think there is a segment of of the uh population and more and more people who um, they understand what a B Corp is and what a public benefit corporation is, and they are attracted to doing business with companies that care. This is true for retailers, too. Um, a number of retailers, and I'm talking, you know, large retailers, have commented on the fact that we're a B Corp and they're attracted to that. Oh, really? That's interesting to know. Is that just in the U.S. or internationally? Well, um, truthfully, I don't know about internationally. I uh, I don't know that much about what's attracting our international buyers to buy our chips. Our chips are uh, available um, – well, they're very available in Canada and Australia, and they're – available in a in a less uh concentrated way in about 15 other countries so you know people come to us and they want our chips you know we will sell them anywhere in the world where people want to buy them so um but are those people attracted to b corps i know mainly in the u.s i know that that um being a company that cares is important, um, and I think it's uh, 
very important to the millennial generation who will soon be the biggest buying block um, we have. That's goods. so true. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's so true. That's really heartening, actually, to hear that the retailers as well as consumers are are attracted to that. That that's really good. So we, as we've gone on to that, the topic of distribution and and you know getting your products out there. As you mentioned, your your products are available in a number of retail outlets across the US, Canada, Australia, and these other countries that you mentioned. So. Can you give a, a, some idea about how do you make that happen? So, you know, for other vegan businesses who are creating a brand of any kind and, you know, they want to get it into these retailers, can you talk us through a little bit about how you go about making all that happen? Um, I think that when you're a, um, when you're a new entrepreneur and you've got a product and you've you've tested it in your local market and it's got some traction and you've got a brand identity, you need to really take a hard look at what your skill set is and what your experience level and track record is. If you don't have experience and a track record in distribution, marketing, and all of that stuff, you better be prepared to um, ally yourself with an expert who is. It takes expertise and experience to deal with dis- distribution networks and um, and large retailers and all of that sort of thing. You cannot expect to be able to do that yourself. Okay, right. So, do you go? Which do you approach retailers directly, or do you go through a distributor or a broker? And what are some of the pros and cons of of those approaches? Um, well, on our level of business, distributors we have many different distributors, and uh, distributors and brokers are pretty essential. Um, we have known companies uh, that do without a broker network, um, but they are companies that are extremely sophisticated um, and cash rich. <laughs> I, I don't. They can. Um, they have ways of of getting around. Uh, I don't think that a a normal company is going to get around uh, those distribution. Um, um, you know the supply chain, the normal supply chain for very long. I could be wrong. I, w- I would love to be proved wrong. I think it depends on your level of sophistication. Maybe somebody who's very, very tech savvy could figure out how to, um, you know, do something in another way. For us, we um, we work with distributors and. Uh, and we work with brokers. Got it, got it. So, because your products are available internationally as well, so can you talk about what are some of the challenges involved in national and international distribution? Um, well, uh, our country is very big and there's a lot of people in it. And so, um, there are many regions. So, you know, just to, you know, California is is in itself it's it's a large landmass and it's 
the population of many countries. So just to roll out a product in California alone (laughs) is a a big deal. Um, To do it all over the United States in every region, um, that's a bigger deal. You know, it's, uh, it just is. Um, and it, it takes a lot of, a lot of people and relationships to make that happen. I was going to, just to think about, as you were saying that, obviously to get to the, the kind of level that you've got to and fast as well, as you say, your company's only been going for for five years. So let's talk a little bit about staff. So approximately how many staff do you have, Liza? Um, let's see. Uh, we have, um, in our central office, we have nine people, and we have six full-time employees who work remotely from different parts of the U.S. Oh, okay. Okay, excellent. That's a good good mix. So how do you go about finding and keeping experienced and motivated staff? Well, um, Reed and his brother Roy and our CFO, COO, Amrit Khalsa, have all been in the natural products industry for many years. We're tied into the grapevine, so we find good people. We just Uh. ask around. We've never used a headhunter. (laughs) We just ask (laughs) around. Um, And we keep them because um, we have a homey, pleasant atmosphere. (laughs) And we're kind of, (laughs) we try to be homey, pleasant people, too. we run our business in our home. So, uh, do you? Employ- oh, yes, wow. we do. Our, our wow. employees, uh, come to work in our living room. Actually, if you go to our YouTube <laughs> channel, you can see a little, a little film about it. Um, yeah, we do. Um, that, you know, it's not something I would recommend for everybody, but, uh, for us, it's, it's, it's a very rich, it creates a very rich culture. Um, we obviously really know the people that we're working with, even the people who work remotely. We work very closely together as a team. I'm saying it, that really kind of ties in with the whole family uh, business, that, that kind of extension of the, the family, which is amazing. So what about create, but you don't manufacture, do you manufacture them in your home? No, of course not. No, no. not so thinking so. No, I'm thinking <laughs> that no, would okay. be impossible. Yeah, uh, we I... we um, no the warehousing and and of course the manufacturing is done in in large plants. We have very intimate relationships with our uh, manufacturer partners on their long term okay. relationships. We show up in the factory regularly. We, um, you know, we do a lot of. Um, well, we just work very closely and we do a lot of quality control and so forth. Wonderful. Now, you talked about, um, uh, you know, the importance of hiring the right people, you know, with the right expertise. So what, what if any, expert help have you used over the years to grow your business? So I'm thinking in terms of, you know, maybe business coaching, marketing experts, publicity, that kind of thing. We don't generally hire those people. We do all that in-house. Um you know, we study, we do research, but in terms of our brand message and how we get it out there, I think the one um, the one thing that we really, um, we have a partner that we work with on our packaging um, that, that is a packaging expert, graphic design firm, 
And um, I wouldn't do without that because, um, you know, packaging is everything. <laughs> what can I, I say? <laughs> and I'm true. very proud of ours. We we redesigned it last year, and we redesigned our packaging because we wanted to go. Um, we felt like for our core natural product consumer, we could have one kind of packaging. Um, and we could just state our attributes. But for the mainstream, we felt like we had to communicate emotionally through beautiful imagery. And I think we've done that. Yes. So I'm, I'm very happy yes. with our new packaging. And Fantastic. we couldn't do it without our graphic design partners. And I can um, imagine as well with all your experience, like your family expertise, you've got so much experience, mm-hmm. I guess, from running other other types of business um, mm-hmm. and getting that out there for sure. Let's talk a little bit about competition then. So obviously nowadays there are a lot more options available to, for people to buy ve- vegan products and also, as you say, for mainstream, for people just wanting to buy, in your case, like chips or crisps, as mm-hmm. we call them in the UK or Australia. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. including, so how do you go about standing out? How does Beanfields go about standing out both within the vegan business Serena and outside of it and maintaining customers? Um, well, we just make the best darn chips we can, you know. Um, that's the main reason, and we try to put them out there in a, in a very attractive package, and we just keep making relationships and building our business. And um, we chose a growing market, and uh, as the market grows, we grow with it. So we're very, um, you know, I won't say we're lucky that way. We considered many other types of business to go into. You know, <laughs> it was a very conscious choice. Um, but um, so that's, I guess, what I would say. For sure. What's particularly unique about Beanfields chips as opposed to others? Apart from the fact that they they taste amazing and they're in great packaging, is there anything particularly unique that that you you think would make them stand apart from other types of chips? Well, they have more nutrition than many other chips. Almost, you know, they're toward the top of, of the chip category in terms of their nutrition. Um, I think the fact, you know, when people snack, they want to have, increasingly, consumers want to have a meal when they snack because snacking is how they're getting most of their nutrition. So they need some actual protein and fiber and energy from that snack. Um, And I think we offer that in a very attractive form. And by attractive, I mean yummy. And, you know, I think people want to eat the yummiest snack they can. That's that's better for them. Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, the, nobody's um, under the illusion that a chip is a health food. Um, you know, that's just not true, but they can be much better for you than most of the chips out there in ours are. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. And plus, you've got your your B Corp certification, which is, I guess is another real uh, attractive um, selling point. 
Now, I've heard a lot about, as we've been talking, I've heard you say quite a bit about partnering and relationships. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, because some, there's some, in some circles now, it's kind of, let's not even think about competition per se. Instead, you know, embrace your so-called competitors as collaborators, you know, and mm-hmm. think about them to do, maybe to do joint ventures. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And curious about, I know you've touched a little bit about on some of the partnerships, but I'm um, talking about perhaps, you know, have you done anything at all with kind of people who are working, doing similar things to you in your industry? Or, what, or just what are your general thoughts on collaboration versus competition? Um, snacks is a very competitive industry. And better for you snacks are no different. Very competitive. That being said, collaboration is also important. Um, we... Uh, um, I think um, I think in some industries maybe that works to be collaborative with your competitors um, in our industry yes we are um, collaborative with our competitors uh, in some ways, for instance, we promote beans. We don't just promote them, you know, like we're the only bean chip that exists. There are a few others. Not many, though. There are many chips that say bean on the front of them. Very few of those are actually bean chips. Oh, there, right. <laughs> there are corn chips with a few beans in them. Um, uh, um, ours, of course, are made of beans and brown rice. Uh and you know so um and we are to my knowledge the only better for you chip that's made of beans and 100% brown rice um you know we show that we care but you know we want beans to be an ingredient in food and i you know over the last 5 years um Beans have really come a long way in people's understanding of how they can be an important and really vital ingredient in food that's really tasty and and can be in almost anything like you know bread or cookies or you know any anything you could name beans can be a part of that and now people are starting to understand that we've been a part of making that happen for our whole industry, not just for our company. Um, So I do think that our company benefits every other company that uses beans, particularly as a main ingredient, but as any kind of ingredient. Beans are becoming sexier and sexier. Yeah. People like them more and more. Um, This year uh, is... uh, 2016 is the United Nations Year of the Pulse, and pulse means beans, lentils, and peas. Ah. So the United Nations has um, formally acknowledged the importance of beans in the health of the, and sustainability of the world and its food supply. So, you know, we're all... I think, you know, 
all vegan foods and all bean-based foods are um, are pulling for the bean. Um, beans are biodiverse. They're non-GMO. There are all sorts of really great things about beans. Sure. So tell me, who you, who's your main demographic, Eliza, in terms of your customers and consumers? I know you touched on millennials earlier. Do you have an idea of who your main um, kind of customers are and also approximately what percentage of them are vegan? Um, our customers are across the board we see our, at least our potential customers as anybody who picks up a bag of chips. Um, so that would mean 5 to 7% of those people are vegan, in, at least in the U.S. I think that's about what it is. However, 78% of people in the U.S., are interested in reducing the animal products in their diet for environmental, ethical, and spiritual reasons. So even if you're a die-hard animal products person, just you just have to have animal products at every meal, you're probably going to be entertaining some vegans, and you're going to want to provide some vegan alternatives. And mm. our chips please everybody, uh, even many people with food allergies um, can eat our chips. I was just curious because, you know, in marketing terms, the whole idea is, you know, you you do these marketing exercises to find out who your ideal client is and then you market specifically to them using language that they understand and that appeals to them. So I'm yeah. just curious, how does that work when your customers are so broad? You know, there's the whole kind of adage of when you market to everyone, you market to no one kind of thing. What What are your thoughts yeah. on that? And how do you get around that? <laughs> um, well, let me put it to you this way. Everybody has a five-year-old kid inside of them that wants a yummy snack. Everybody. I mean, just everybody. <laughs> so, um, you know, and everybody's five-year-old kid has a, you know, a 30-something mom who's concerned that that five-year-old kid gets decent nutrition. So if you put those two parts of every person together, you get our customer. <laughs> our, our customer is the kid in every person combined with the person who really cares about the long-term welfare of that person. Cool. And so 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 it's a so we try to show our consumers that at least to a little degree, they can have their key can eat it too. Because <laughs> we really do think a lot of our con a lot of our fans um, feel that our chips are just as yummy as any mainstream chip. For sure. Now let's talk about the use of the word vegan in your marketing materials, you know, on your website, etc., and the prominence of the word. You know, there's two schools of thought. One, it's it's limiting, it scares people away, or two, you know, it's it's clever niche marketing. What are your thoughts on this? And just to tell us a little bit about your choice of how you use the word in your marketing and why. 
we shout the word vegan loud and proud on the very top of our package. It says, always vegan and gluten-free. <laughs> so we are not shy about saying vegan. We do not think it's a niche market. Um, we think that um, people are, are interested in vegan food, whether they're vegan or not. And um, we just think being, being vegan is a terrific thing that more and more people are going to want to be. So we don't feel shy about it at all. Um, sometimes we use the term plant-based, which is a little bit more dignified. And, it, you know, some people still get the impression that, you know, uh, I mean, there are still some um, vegans out there who can be grumpy about their veganism. Um, and they're entitled, you know. I, I'm all for it. You know, we can have grumpy vegans. We can have all sorts of vegans. We can have Ellen DeGeneres. She's not a grumpy vegan. We can have all sorts of, of uh, you know, wonderful um, Leonardo DiCaprio, not a grumpy vegan. Um, there are lots of wonderful vegans out there who um, who are doing great things. For sure, for sure. Um, so in terms of marketing and PR, what um, what marketing strategies do you use and that you find most effective? Um, early on, our philosophy was if we could get our chips into people's mouths, if we could get them to taste our chips, they would be enamored and they would buy them. And that worked pretty well. But now we're a little big for that strategy and we can't send our faithful brand representative into every, every market, you know. And we don't have too many of those in Australia, so we have to have other means. Um, and, you know, we use social media. We're on uh, YouTube and Facebook. We do lots of uh, contests we're on instagram and twitter um we do lots of contests so if you want to um in the united states <laughs> if you want to win a free uh, uh box of our chips you can uh, enter our contests we have many many of them so your chances of winning eventually are pretty good um <laughs> No, that's great. That's useful to hear, actually. I like the fact that you say, particularly if you're, when you're starting out, like you say, you kind of need to get into the field, you know, tabling or having a stall or a booth at events to, to actually get people to consume them. Then as you grow, um, you have these different um, <coughs> ways of reaching people and, uh, and competitions, contests are, are a great idea. So that's that's great. Thank you for <coughs> for sharing that. What about media, um, Liza? Has Beanfields been <coughs> featured in any media of any kind? Um, yes, we <coughs> certainly have. We were recently, <coughs> in, um, there was a lovely article on our brand in the Huffington Post. Um, we uh, were recently featured in Good Housekeeping and on the Today Show. So oh, it's not like we're not in the mainstream media we certainly are and these are these are not this is earned media we certainly don't go out and pay for that kind of stuff we um 
We've won many awards. Uh, we recently won an award at the uh, an innovation award at the Salty Snacks um, Expo in in um, Chicago. Fantastic! So, you know, we get ourselves out there. So how do you get yourselves out? You mentioned you don't really work with like PR experts. So uh, I'm fascinated the fact that you particularly got on something like the Today Show. Um, how did you go about doing that? Did you pitch them? Did they contact you? They contacted us. Wonderful. Um, and they contact. It, it's through uh, the network of nutritionists. You know, nutritionists are out there <clears throat> trying to find good things that people will actually eat, and so. Um, the nutritionist um, said she's looking for snacks that have a vegetable or some other uh, nutritious ingredient as the first ingredient on their list. So she's asking consumers to look and see if the first ingredient there is something that's not empty calories. Oh. And so our first ingredient is always beans. Fantastic. That's so cool. <laughs> I love that, that you managed to get, you know, a really good, great piece of, you know, major mainstream media, mainstream TV show by, you know, doing what's right, obviously the business for good, and obviously being out there enough in your, your other ways of marketing that, that consumers were able to go, okay, yeah, you should get these guys on the show. So I think that's right. very inspiring. I like that. <laughs> so, so the 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 thought really behind that is that we designed the product from day one to be a particular way and send a particular message. So we didn't have to add that on. It was inherent to what we were doing from day one. Brilliant. Brilliant. No, I love that. And that's great that that's been recognized. So let's talk a little bit about um, people who are wanting to start their own business and run it on ethical vegan principles, regardless of the type of business it might be. Um, tell us about what, in your opinion, because you're very entrepreneurial, like you say, you're not really cut out to work for other people. Um, what are the uh, key things that people need to take into account before making that leap from employment to self-employed or entrepreneur? Well, I don't really I don't really endorse that people make that leap. Um, you know, in other words, keep your day job, you know. <laughs> I mean, don't take unnecessary risks. I think that would be my message. Um, you know, in our case we were already in the natural food industry, just not in the manufacturing part of it. Um, because Reed and Roy had had been marketing, um, they had been uh, brokering natural foods for decades. So they were already in the industry. Their day job was already the industry. So it was, a net, it was something they had always dreamed of to have their own company. But if you're really like you're, you know, I think the thing I would say is um, real innovators manage their risks. They are very, very conservative in most ways because they know they're going to have to take a huge leap of faith and take an enormous risk. So they make everything else very conservative. For example, we did not mortgage our house when we started our business. Um, we were fortunate to be able to do it that way. Um, so 
that would be my message. You know, manage your risk. Mm, I think it's really important. Yeah, I really like that. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's important for for people to hear because sometimes they can get a bit excited and go, oh, you know, this is what I'm going to do. It's my passion and my purpose. And they maybe get a little bit carried. And you don't want to, you know, um, discourage them. But at the same time, like you're saying, I think it's really important for them to have that that good balance of passion and being inspired by also, like you say, yeah, managing the risk and uh, and reality. So so thank you for sharing that. So now obviously there are, uh, you know, starting any business. Um, it, you know, there are, it has its challenges. Um, what were some of the challenges in the beginning that you could feel comfortable sharing um, with starting up Beanfield, with making that transition, as you say, into manufacturing? Well, um, I would say, um, you know, in the beginning of the company, you have to do everything. And so you're doing a lot of things you're not good at and you don't even like. Um, that's just the reality of how it happens. In in my case, I was um, particularly involved in uh, the certification and verification process. So so um, the non-GMO certification that uh, every Beanfields product has. Um, I was the person managing that and managing the gluten-free um, certification that we also have on every product. Um, that was my job. I'm not suited for that job. I'm not a detailed person. I'm a decent communicator. I'm decent at writing copy. I have a lot of more artistic skills and (laughs) some people skills, but not, I'm, now we have someone with an engineering background doing that job, much more suited (laughs) to the job than me. Um, so, you know, you have to be prepared to do a lot of things you don't like. Because you're not going to be able to do only the things you like because everything has to be done. And and it has to be done right then by whoever's available to do it, whether it's sweeping the floor or, um, you know, I'm I'm not a salesperson, but I I made some sales calls because it needed to be done. And I so I scrubbed myself up and I made sales calls. (laughs) <laughs> I love that you shared that because I think again a lot of people starting out in business kind of think they want to do the thing that they love so you know they maybe want to bake the cookies or they want to you know if they're a designer they want to do the design stuff and then they they get quite disillusioned when they find oh I've actually got to do all this business kind of stuff as well you know particularly as they're they're starting out so I, I love that you've shared that I guess when I was listening to you saying that what I did feel like though it gives you an appreciation of the different types of jobs that you then can hire people to do do you know what I mean like you say you you've got Very someone in with an engineering background and exactly <laughs> Exactly. Yes. You really appreciate the people who come in and do those jobs and you and you're able to communicate with them because you yeah. you've been a, a few blocks in their moccasins. <laughs> They're vegan moccasins. Right. Vegan mo- yeah, I I wear vegan shoes, believe me. Um <laughs> Um, now we touched on you touched on a little bit about funding the business and you Mm -hmm. mentioned about being you know risk averse so obviously every business even online ones only they've got they're going to have some startup costs so what are some of the methods you've either you've used or that you can comment on I think you mentioned investors so what are some of the pros and cons of of the various methods like investors loans grants all these kinds of things our method um of fundraising is relationships that are deep and long. Uh, And 
we established those by uh, being long-term members of um, groups that are concerned with ethical investing, um, like uh, Social Venture Network. Um, Social Venture Network is a is a network that's that's been supportive of our company, not the whole network, but individuals in it. Um, so we did not, we never did any of the crowdsourcing stuff. Um, maybe we will uh, someday. I, we did one crowdsourcing campaign, but that was for Bean Research. It wasn't to benefit our company or raise funds for our our operations. No. Um, so um, I'm not sure our method would work for any other company, but I would say that um, that um, for instance, the hub network, which is international, um, there are many networks of ethically oriented businesses, and they they um, some of them are for uh, companies with five million plus in revenues. Some are for smaller companies. Some, like Social Venture Network, have programs that are outreach programs for uh, entrepreneurs, particularly minority entrepreneurs. Oh, cool. So, um, you know, um, I think being in a uh, a community of uh, like-minded people, whether you do that through a co-working space or whether you do that through a network of people who are doing crowdsourcing, whatever your method is of of getting that community of people who know you and know where you stand and what you stand for, that's what um, that's what gives you access to people who will support you in various ways. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing those. Those sound like excellent um, resources, and we'll, I'll put links to those in the uh, on the show notes page. That's fantastic. So the final um, couple of questions are around uh, mindset. So many uh, and personal development, because a lot of business owners say running and owning their business, it's the fastest and most effective form of personal development because it forces you out of your comfort zone. And like you mentioned, you, know, you had to do things that you weren't necessarily comfortable with. What qualities do you believe are essential to staying the course and and running a successful ethical business? Well, I really think um, there's no one set of qualities. I think each entrepreneur has a unique approach. And the important thing is to find out what your strengths and weaknesses are and go for your strengths and then find partners who can compensate for your weaknesses. Everybody's got both, and you you know each entrepreneur has your has their own unique cocktail. But it's very important not to think, oh gosh, I can't read a balance sheet, so I can't be an entrepreneur. Well, mm-hmm. you probably can if you find somebody who's really reliable who reads your balance sheet. I mean. 
every entrepreneur should be able to read a balance sheet. I, I don't mean to say <laughs> you can't really farm that one out. But but I, what I mean is, you know, you don't need to be an accountant. You don't need to wear every hat. But you need to be really realistic about what hats you can wear, and you need to really value the people who can do the things you can't. Wonderful. I love that. That's a great answer. Now, are there any specific like steps or strategies or techniques or things that you do or you've used to ensure a strong mental and emotional well-being as a business owner? Because as we know, you know, running a business of any kind, even if you've got a big team, there are, you know, different challenges, different stresses that, that come up. Are there any anything that you do to kind of, yeah, maintain that strong mental and emotional well-being as an entrepreneur? I think uh, in our particular company, um, my husband and I are former yoga teachers. Our CFO, COO, is also a former (laughs) yoga teacher. Um, uh, A couple of people, other people on our staff are former yoga teachers. So yoga is one of the, the glues. It's not like we're practicing asanas in the office, but we have an approach, you know, that, that, uh, approach in a common language that we share. Um, And um, I think that helps. Um, A lot of us are vegans or vegetarians, and I think that helps. It helps that we, um, we have that common language. Now, some of us aren't. You know, some of us are out eating burgers every day. Um, that's the minority, but we need all types. You know, we need to respect our differences, but also there are some commonalities that really um, bind us. And then there's the family approach. We have a family approach to business. Not everyone should go into business with their family. We have um, right now, um, we have five people in our fam in our company who are related who play major roles so you know not everyone should do that i don't necessarily true, recommend yeah. it but it <laughs> but for some people you know like in the us i think it's 65% of companies are family owned wow family really? owned, yeah family owned business is a very powerful and ununderstood force you know you you look at people like corporate coaches and um a lot of them don't really don't really orient themselves toward a family business um we have one partner who um won't hire anyone who's a relative of anyone else and that's not that uncommon mm. um but we have the opposite approach we we have you know and i i was only counting pe- people who are actually employees we also have brand representatives who are relatives we have all sorts of people out there um you know who who identify with our brand and and who support our brand in various ways who are family members what are some tips you can ad- advise then now that you're talking about that because like you said it doesn't work for everyone what are some tips to to be able to do that successfully and particularly if you're like you say your part you and your husband are the you know the co-founders so what are some tips you can offer for people who maybe are considering going into business either with their partner or their spouse or their family um well uh it's not for the faint of heart. I would say, especially with your spouse, you know, um, I think it's a make or break proposition. You know, either you'll get 
much closer and fall more deeply in love or you'll break up, you know, and it's, it's, <laughs> I, I like to joke that my, my husband, uh, fired me. Um, he, I started out as vice president. Um, he demoted me to artistic director and then, um, then he fired me all together, but that didn't last more than a few weeks. And then, you know, I had to crawl back up to being a VP, um, and, um, you know, but I earned my place in the company and we made our way as a couple and that's not for everybody. Um, you just have to really look at, um, what you want to do and how you want to do it. Um, I have another friend who, uh, started a company and she did it completely independently and that at a certain point she invited her husband to join her in the company. Um, it just, you know, different companies work different ways. But I do want to emphasize that both Glidden brothers are, are co- I mean, my husband is the founder of the company and his brother Roy and I are the co-founders. So, right. Right. so we're both, we've all been important founding energies. Sure, I can imagine you probably have to, uh, you know, with couples like you mentioned, to have a, a re- you know, a good sense of self awareness to be able to, yeah, to handle those trials and tribulations when they happen. So it sounds like you've obviously uh, managed to do that, which is wonderful. So uh, that's great. Um, well, what have been I the would, key? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that it, uh, in addition to that, we've both lived in ashrams and lots of group living situations so we sort of we're sort of community oriented people and i think that right. that right. A, a lot of hard knocks in the community area really helps us got it got it thank you for sharing that so final couple of questions what have been the key lessons you've learned through running this business or even you're, you're just running businesses as a whole um you can't control what happens um, you know, it, it, you have, you know, you, you can steer a bit, but you know, it, the, um, the business and the marketplace have their own, um, momentum and you have to surf that. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'm getting comfortable with, with, being able to um, not be a control freak, I guess. <laughs> I know a lot of people I, I've interviewed say a lot of the business owners I know say that and they're kind of like that's been one of the key things they've had to learn to do is to surrender and not, um, you know, try and control everything and, and get comfortable well, with not having that control. Well, you, you know, you have to try even though you have to keep trying to control things even though it's impossible <laughs> because that's what business is. I mean, you have to, you know, sort of, get your arms around it, around costs and, you know, distribution and all these things. They, they, they're, they're impossible to control and yet you, you have to keep trying. <laughs> and then final question then, Liza, what's the long-term vision for Beanfields and for yourself? Well, um, uh, I would say for Beanfields, our vision is, if you're going into a store and there's a snack available, Beanfields should be available. You know, we see our snack as, as just as yummy and just as desirable as 
as anything out there. Um, and um, for Reed and I personally, um, you know, most entrepreneurs are probably a little younger than we are. We're uh, both 63. So, you know, we um, maybe, you know, sometime in the future we'd have a little more privacy than we have now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'd be and we'd be taking things a little easier, but you know, for now, um, you know, we're we're on an amazing adventure, and it's you an are, amazing and thing you, to share. You are, you know, and I'm sorry to interrupt, and I love that you shared your age. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's actually going to be really inspiring for people, you know, who are maybe in their fifties or sixties who kind of think, oh yeah, you know, all these entrepreneurs, they're all young, you know, you have to be younger to, you know, start a new business. And I love that you've demonstrated that you can start a business at any age and still love it and, and be successful. Mm -hmm. So I do appreciate you sharing that. <laughs> yeah. With, with the caveat, I think that the older you get, I think the the more risk averse you become. And I think that's appropriate. You know, you yes. don't want to take the same level of risks in your 60s that you took in your 20s. That's just the fact. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's an excellent point. Liza, you've shared so many uh, wonderful insights and, and experiences and your expertise. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Katrina. It's been my pleasure. So that was Liza Broad-Glidden from Beanfield Snacks. You can find out more at beanfieldsnacks.com. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and then going to episode 40. Now for our vegan business news roundup. Soul Burger has opened a second outlet in the inner west suburb of Glebe in Sydney, Australia. The opening night was this week and I went along. There were literally queues out of the door for at least two hours and I'm pretty sure they continued even after I left. It was mostly a young crowd of millennials there and the place was packed. So this is a great development because Solberger, which has its original location in the eastern suburb of Randwick, switched to an all-vegan menu late last year after owner Amit Tawari, a young medical doctor currently doing his residency, realised he needed to match his personal ethics to his business ones. So to see the eatery continue to thrive and open a second outlet and attract so many people keen to enjoy plant-based foods is wonderful. Solberger offers a range of burgers using products from Gardein and other companies, along with fries and delicious dairy-free milkshakes. I enjoyed a cheeseburger on opening night and I'm looking forward to many more because the Glebe location is just a few doors down from vegan supermarket, the Cruelty Free Shop. So yet another reason to visit the area. Also in Australia, a vegan eatery has been voted best restaurant by readers of Time Out magazine in Melbourne. The People's Choice Award went to Smith & Daughters, located on the vegan-friendly Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. The restaurant is owned by Mo Wise and Shannon Martinez, who opened it two years ago, and they've since added a vegan deli nearby. Martinez is a meat eater and chef by trade who is determined to serve up tasty plant-based alternatives. According to Time Out Melbourne, the pair estimate only around 20% of their customers are committed vegans, with the rest just looking for good food. Now, I must admit, I haven't actually been to Smith & Daughters, 
Whenever I've gone to Melbourne, it's usually because I'm speaking at an event or a veg fest and I'm not usually there for long, but I definitely plan on checking it out next month when I'm down there speaking at World Vegan Day. I love that a vegan restaurant won this award in such a broad category and it just goes to show that we really don't need meat or animal secretions to create delicious food. And I really hope this message continues to get out there to the masses. Major UK supermarket chain Sainsbury's has launched its own range of vegan cheese, reports the Huffington Post. Made from coconut, the flavours include cheddar, Wensleydale with cranberries, a feta alternative and soft cheese. The deliciously free-from range, which is created by Boot Islands Foods, was developed after recent research by the supermarket found that pizza, cheese boards, cheesecake and lasagna were the most sought-after items by shoppers looking for allergen-free products. The range covers every type of cheese use, from melting on toast, sprinkling on pasta or making a frosting for a cake. I'm really pleased to hear this and I'm not surprised that Sainsbury's have done this, only that they took so long. When I went vegan 20 years ago in 1996, I used to shop at the large Sainsbury's in Camden because it had a decent range of vegan products. So it just goes to show that the more people demand certain types of products, the more that larger companies will supply them, which is why we have to continue to increase the demand for vegan goods. So well done, Sainsbury's. Vegan pubs are becoming all the rage. Recently, Sydney in Australia and Nottingham in the UK saw the opening of the first plant-based pubs in the areas. Now Austin, Texas is getting in on the act with the launch of the Beer Plant, which is described as a 100% plant-based bar and kitchen, reports Austin Eater. Owned by Ray and Sarah McCacken, with local vegan chef Laura Lou Mustachio at the helm in the kitchen, the menu features a hops and chips plate, including beer-battered hearts of palm, hand-cut chips and cabbage slaw with Cajun remoulade, crispy buffalo cauliflower with blue cheese dip, the ploughman's board with house-made sourdough bread, fermented nut cheeses, tomato chutney, cultured coconut butter with grapes, apple slices and walnuts. Oh my gosh, that sounds absolutely delicious. And as well as attracting vegans and vegetarians, the beer plant also aims to be a destination for craft beer aficionados. The bar will offer more than 30 beers on tap, including sour, farmhouse and session and local seasonal offerings. Fantastic. And it's clever too. Getting people into a venue for decent beer is a great way to expose them to plant-based foods. The Plant Pure brand is continuing to expand its enterprise with the opening of a Plant Pure cafe in Philadelphia, reports philly.com. Moving into the space previously occupied by vegan eatery Mayors, the new cafe, which is set to open by the end of the year, is a partnership with VGE's Fernando Peralto. And if you're thinking Plant Pure sounds familiar, it's because it's headed up by Nelson Campbell, star of the popular documentary Plant Pure Nation, and featuring his father, the renowned T. Colin Campbell, author of The China Study. The menu will feature a salad bar and hot bowls, and its unique selling point is no oil. It's fascinating to see this brand grow. 
My friend Ron Gandisa works for Plant Pure and they've done a wonderful job of spreading the word and creating large communities across the globe around the Plant Pure brand using a diverse range of elements of which the National Cafe chain is the latest. Finally, a coalition of investors who manage $1.25 trillion worth of assets have called on 16 large food companies to focus on plant-based proteins, reports Global Meat News. Yeah, I didn't particularly like going to that website, as you can imagine, but it's good they're covering the story. The 40 investors were brought together by the Farm Animal Investment Risk and Return Initiative, known as FAIR, F-A-I-R-R. They wrote to 16 companies, including General Mills, Tesco's and Kraft Heinz, calling for them to outline their strategy to profit from plant-based meat alternatives. Jeremy Collar, founder of the FAIR initiative and chief investment officer at Collar Capital, said, The world's over-reliance on factory-farmed livestock to feed the growing global demand for protein is a recipe for financial, social and environmental crisis. Investors want to know major food companies have a strategy to avoid this protein bubble and to profit from a plant-based protein market set to grow by 8.4% annually over the next five years. Well, let's hope that these companies take note of these investors so we start to see more of a shift away from meat. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a review and a rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. I'm Katrina Fox from veganbusinessmedia.com and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode. Bye for now. 